This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books in East Asia Studies podcast. My name is Nathan Hobson, and today we're going to be talking about Dr. Sayaka Chitani's Nation Empire, Ideology and Rural Youth Mobilization in Japan and its Colonies, which is out from Cornell University Press in 2018. Uh, This is a book that tackles the fraught question of uh, how and why young men in marginalized and rural areas of Japan and its colonies became emotionally invested in the project of Japanese nationalism and militarism. Chitani asks why so many rural youth, especially in colonial Taiwan and Korea, actively participated in Japanese imperial and wartime programs, including volunteering as Japanese soldiers. Nation Empire explores the role of the Seinendang, village youth associations, in youth mobilization within the Japanese Empire, focusing on a comparison of villages in Okinawa, Miyagi Prefecture, uh, both in Japan, and also in Taiwan and Korea. Chitani's translocal study highlights the social dynamics at the local level of the creation and mobilization of rural youth and rural modernity within Japan's national empire. In particular, she unearths the subjectivity of those young men as they use the new category of youth, and rural youth in particular, to advance their own interests vis-a-vis their elders and the national imperial society in which they lived. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Saika Chitani from the National University of Singapore. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you oh, tell us you a little bit? Me. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit um, about how you came to this project about nation hyphen empire and uh, the rural youth groups? Uh, sure. Um, so this was my dissertation, and uh, I have a long prehistory before starting a. A history PhD. I did my PhD at Columbia University, but uh, originally I was studying, well, my BA is in international law, and I was studying more of international politics and international affairs. So originally I started my PhD in political science in George Washington University, and I, many things happened, and I switched to history at Columbia and um, when I came in, my one of my advisors, Carol Gluck, told me that I don't have to become a historian just because you're in the history department. And I kind of it just sparked my joy. And, and then I, I switched. <laughs> and uh, so if you can, if you read my book, you, you can probably tell that there is some, some, uh, some influence from uh, social sciences remaining in my approach because I I do um, comparative work and I am more aware of um, comparability or a question of um, generalizability. But overall, uh, I came to this topic because I wanted to do some cross-national, transnational work in East Asia and since the time that I was in political science department, I have been dealing with this, this 
very a mysterious idea of nationalism and militarism, especially in the case of Japan. So, so all the interests came together, and I decided to do some transnational, translocal、um, social history of、uh, rural youth movement, rural youth mobilization in the Japanese Empire. Yeah, that's really interesting, and、um, it actually you're you're very right that、uh, the social science influence is definitely there in your work,、um, and that actually for me as somebody who's you know read the book that really clears up. Um, it's very clarifying in terms of understanding what's behind the project. So thank you for、uh, thank you for that background.、Um, so you know, as you've、uh, already mentioned, the book is about youth mobilization、um, and in what you've provocatively called、uh, Japan's nation hyphen empire. And we'll just stick with nation empire from here on out.、Um, but you focus specifically on these. Uh, rural youth organizations, the Seinendang,、um, and so I think we should actually start off by defining some terms here for the audience.、Um, the book is Nation Empire. Let's start there. So, what exactly do you mean by Nation Empire? What is this coinage? What does it do? Right. Okay. So, well, first of all, I have to say that I,、um, at the beginning, I hesitated to use this phrase, Nation Empire, in the title, and I'll explain.、Mm-hmm. This, you know, I explain why later. But by the term nation empire, I tried to capture the main characteristic of the Japanese empire, which is a drive to transform colonial societies into the image of ideal Japanese people, and also a tendency to use the same or similar techniques of governance and dominance between the metropole and and the colonies. And people usually, or historians, have been using the term assimilationism, and which is totally fine as a term because it was assimilationism. But the term just doesn't capture the nature of it because it reminds reminds the reader of the French model or French Algeria. And I thought that comparison between French Algeria and the Japanese Empire was a bit misleading、um, because. Japan was a bit different because Japan did not have a sense of universal morality like French republicanism, but instead it had a strong emphasis on ethnic kinship and common ancestors and whatnot. So, so in a nutshell, Japan was building a nation across the imperial domains, or what I call a nation empire. So, by this phrase, I'm trying to capture what Japan was doing. And、uh, I wanted to direct attention to overlapping and simultaneous processes of nation building and empire building in in the Japanese imperial domain. But as I said, I hesitated to use this phrase in the title because the book is not really about how Japanese imperialists built a nation empire, but rather it focuses on what was going on at the very local level, which. Almost accidentally、uh, contributed to the goal of nation empire building. So it's kind of a little self-defeating、uh, title, I have to say. 
<laughs> well, you're, you're you're the first author I've ever talked to who's uh, who's made that observation. I actually, I, I would like to push back on that. Actually, that I found it was very useful for me in framing what you were doing. In, in other words, that there's this sort of very macro level um, discourse, this argument that you have about the the sort of structure of Japanese uh, nation and empire and how they're you know different uh, from other empires. Um, and then, you know, to me, it seemed that then you get into the same end on these rural youth groups um, as a kind of case study of how that's working at the ground level. So uh, uh, you, you may have thought of it as self-defeating, but it was actually quite helpful oh, to that's me. Great. Um, <laughs> So, so I'd like to get into that part about the Sein Indan. Um, can you tell us about um, you know what they were, when they were first formed, how they functioned, um, and if possible, is there a, a useful comparison between the Japanese Sein Indan and other contemporary youth, youth organizations in other countries and empires around the world? Okay, sure. So the Sein Indan, which I translate as um, village youth associations, um, they have pre-modern roots. And uh, across Japan, uh, villages and or even smaller hamlets had all these um, age uh, associations which which ruled their um, hamlets and villages. Uh, so youth associations were just part of their lifelong uh, lifelong uh, governance. And they were they were called wakashugumi, wakamonoshu, or nisezuri in the case of Okinawa. So they were not standardized, but the practice was very common. And it is said that they were first formed around the Kamakura period, so around the 12th, 13th century. But the origin could be another case of invented traditions. I'm 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 not quite sure, but. What I'm sure about this is that these hamlet age associations were very common throughout the Tokugawa period. So by the Meiji Restoration, uh, these groups existed for centuries. And how did they function? Um, they were the core of labor force. So uh, they helped collective farming and they organized festivals, seasonal festivals, and they uh, did crime control and fire control. Uh, and also they were part of their life cycle, very important part of a village life cycle. So once they were members of uh, these youth associations, they were introduced to sexual conduct and they were also recognized as uh, uh, sort of the beginning of the adulthood. And so this, th these elements remain after the Meiji Restoration as well. So under Meiji governance, they were transformed to meet Japan's new economic and political demands. The government first tried to suppress these groups um, because they appeared too autonomous and promoting old evil customs, so to speak. But after the Russo-Japanese War, so during the local improvement movement, so to speak, uh, village officials reorganized these youth associations, and they were usually called village senenkai, or village youth groups. And uh, through these uh, groups, village notables tried to spread modern education, modern nationalism, or new farming skill. And also, more importantly, uh, they tried to prepare senenkai members uh, for the universal conscription exam that they had to take at the age of 20. And in 1915, these groups were standardized throughout 
the country under the name of the Seinendan. And these Seinendan groups also built national headquarters, which still exist in Tokyo today. And all this standardization and you know, nationalization uh, were initiated by Tanaka Gichi. He was uh, the uh, later prime minister and uh, uh, he was a uh, top military officer or military official. And they tw- he tra- toured around Europe during World War I and he realized that there is a possibility and the need uh, for mass mobilization uh, in the case of war in the future. So as you can imagine, the army introduced more military drills and put an emphasis on making good, healthy, obedient soldiers. So by the end of the 1910s, the Senendan National Network already had nearly 3 million members, and that continued throughout uh, the interwar period and World War II, and it became a main vehicle of top-down youth mobilization by the state in the 1930s and early 40s. And um, dur- during the course of the 1930s, the Seinendan were also introduced and spread across Taiwan and Korea and Karafuto, and in some cases in other places in the, in the Japanese empire, like Nanyo as well. But obviously what state officials imagined is one thing and how young people, young participants experienced is another. So in my book, I discuss more about how young people interpreted these messages from the army and the state and how they use these institutions and internalize these messages to fight different kinds of battles. Okay, and um, I... When I give a talk um, about the book, I usually say that the Seinendan are the Japanese equivalent of the Boy Scouts or the Hitler Youth to give a sense of what youth groups were in interwar years or even um, before the interwar years. And this this helps, this explanation helps to um, explain what youth groups were very quickly. And the Seinendan were similar to these groups in the way that it spread throughout the empire, just like the Boy Scouts did. And also they offered a model even to anti-colonial activists in the colonies as a way to build a national consciousness and healthy bodies among many young people. And all these groups had an emphasis on, on a strong, uh, strong masculinity and uh, sports and military discipline. And also the Seinendan and the Hitler Youth had a direct exchange program in the 1940s. So select youth from um, these groups visited each other and toured around the empire. But as I said, the Seinendan have very distinctive characteristics as well. Like uh, they spread across the rural countryside, not in urban areas. Uh, so, which was a huge contrast from the Boy Scouts or um, the Hitler Youth. And the Seinenna also had long roots in the community and played a very big socioeconomic role in each village. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, thank you very much. I think uh, that's that's very helpful in sort of clarifying what the Sein Indang are and how they functioned. Um, and I thought it was also very important. You know, you said that uh, this was you know part of what you're interested here in is the um, sort of reception of these ideas by these uh, youth who are involved in the Sein Indang. Um, and in in that respect, it seemed to me that you know the creation of this category of the rural youth or or Nolson Seineng. Um, was also really important to the way that the book is framed and to your arguments. Um, and you touched upon some of the aspects, uh, some of the characteristics that are associated with the Nolson Seinen, uh, masculinity, the preparation, you know, military preparedness, um, those sorts of things. How does how does the the, the category, the concept of Nolson Seinen uh, work in the book? What is it, you know, uh, why does it matter? Right. Uh, so rural, uh, rural youth is a very interesting entity and I used it as um, glue to uh, organize my book as well. And it is a very interesting discursive entity that didn't get enough or any attention at all by historians so far. So, But I, as soon as I started my research, I discovered that it was the magic key phrase that pulled together the whole enterprise of youth mobilization across the Japanese empire. So rural youth is an idealized image of a young male farmer, which carries messages of Japan's agrarian nationalism or nohonshugi. And this figure, rural youth, symbolized a healthy, strong, obedient, yet independent, and elementary school educated, but no more than elementary school and hardworking and loyal Japanese subject. And everyone in pre-war Japanese society, including government, military officials, agrarian activists, education experts, village notables, and even colonial teachers, they all had a different opinion on what Japan needed, but they all agreed that rural rural youth is the pillar of the nation. They are very important. They are great. So they all agree that we have to make rural youth through the Senindan. So naturally, the real young people in the Senindan, the real you know, members, use this concept to empower themselves, whether it was in Tohoku or in the colonial countryside. And this concept was attractive to young people for um, two main reasons. One is because it was the most concrete image of modernity, or what I call rural modernity, that they could imagine. So with this concept of rural youth, they could challenge the superiority of urban culture or highly educated youth. And secondly, and this is what I found in my local case studies, But rural youth also became a career route. So what I mean by this is that they could nearly say, my title is model rural youth, because by the 1930s, villages had a ladder of youth programs that they could climb up. And there were also short-term training sessions that gave out certificates. And um, a number of job, job opportunities became available only to model rural youth. So by be, being a model rural youth, it, it, it 
not only meant that you belong to this demographic category, but also meant that you have a career, very respected career in the countryside. So this socioeconomic environment really confirmed their identity as rural youth as something very modern and very very different from stagnant peasant life. And also they were, they kind of developed this idea that the, the career routes of rural youth uh, was more morally right and superior in comparison to urban corrupt careers. So in short, the idea of rural youth was really powerful in creating a consensus on the emphasis on the rural sphere and also in motivating young people in the countryside to participate in the Senindan. Yeah, thank you very much. That's a, a very helpful explanation. I think this this sort of uh, lays out some of the key concepts of the book and who the protagonists are for your book. Um, and so let's actually jump into uh, the, the the sort of the meat of the book itself. Um, so one of your well, a sort of set of central questions that you pose in the introduction, and I'm just going to quote you here. Um, you say. You know, how did young men in the colonies become passionate about their colonizers' nationalism? Why did they feel compelled to av- apply to the volunteer soldier program? In fact, why on earth did anyone, whether in the metropole or the qual- colonies, embrace a presumably imposed ideology and express willingness to fight for a cause so irrelevant to their immediate interests? Um, and so you've sort of tied these questions into uh, looking at the St. Indom, both uh, in the metropole um, and in the colonies. Um, so to, before we, before we jump into the, the actual chapters and, and your case studies, um, how did you go about looking into these questions and exploring them and what kind of sources and methods did you use? You've talked about this a little bit, you know, in your introduction that you're originally a social scientist who has, you know, come over to the dark side of history. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, okay. So yeah, well, in my book, as in any book, I guess, methodology is presented neatly and you know it, it sounds like I already knew what to do from the very beginning but in reality I went through a long period of trial and error as anyone does right mm-hmm. and these questions themselves emerged when I started writing not when I was doing research but I was interested in the spread of the Senendan I knew they were Senendan in the colonial countryside, but I didn't know how they were received. So I wanted to investigate how the local receptions of the Senendan in different places. And um, well, I had language training in Chinese and Korean, and I, I was raised in Japan. So I kind of, you know, romantically decided to do village level local histories and oral interviews in the Japanese, Taiwanese, and Korean countryside all together. But I had no contacts whatsoever when I started my dissertation research. And um, I almost gave up trying to find a local case in each place so many times. But, um, well, in the end, I found I did locate each individual and um, village cases. And I found a great amount of personal and local details. And especially in Taiwan, I hit the jackpot. I found this figure. I start my introduction with his story, right? Shu Chongfa. He preserved, preserved almost all the documents from his local youth training 
um, experiences. He was an instructor in a youth training institute. So he had personal letters, his own diaries, and uh, all the attendance record and newsletters and and uh, and all sorts of photo- photographs. And even outside Taiwan, though, um, in Korea and in Miyagi and Okinawa, uh, it was difficult, but I could locate uh, individuals who had, who preserved some personal records about youth, youth mobilization. So I consulted their own uh, materials and also uh, some, sometimes they donate their stuff to city archives or town archives. So I basically mired myself in the storage of the local archives and local Seinendam branch storage. Um, I also interviewed these people and former Seinendam members. So I collected anything, everything that could inform me of their family background and village society in general. Yeah, thank you. And I, uh, and that actually uh, leads me really nicely, it segues really nicely into the, the next question that I have for you. Um, so you've you know, alluded to in your answer, the fact that in, you're doing these case studies uh, in, you know, a number of different places. There's one in Tohoku in Miyagi, there's one in Korea, there's one in Taiwan, and you also um, address the the question of the Sein Endan in Okinawa. Um, and, you know, this is part of what, what I see as an innovative aspect of the book, in that you engage with questions of assimilation, mobilization um, across the nation empire, and you identify uh, many of the same processes and dynamics playing out in the margins of the metropole and the colonies, which I think is you know, part of your nation empire uh, argument. Um, do you see this metropole colony relationship as fundamentally similar to the urban rural one uh, within Japan, or is it different? Can you tell us more about that? Okay. Um, so. So um, it was very difficult to hit the right balance in my emphasis mm-hmm. between local specificities and a common pattern. But I thought the current historiography was a little lopsided in emphasizing the difference between the colonies and the metropole. So I thought, okay, I should make a little bit of an intervention here and you know, lay out the similarity more clearly. So uh, what I found is that there are a number of common elements that come together to make a, make a social mechanism that produced an emotional attachment to Japanese nationalism. And I call, I call this mechanism the social mobility complex. And I, I didn't um, come up with this term uh, for the dissertation. I had a very different uh, phrasing for this mechanism, but I did... Um, you know, specifically name it, and my advisors were like rolling their eyes, like you have so many words that you coined in this in this situation. <laughs> and so, but I was like, well, this is really helpful in explaining what was going on. So anyway, so I call, I decided to call it the social mobility complex because the core of this mechanism is a sense of social mobility or a sense of self-transformation shared by um, village youth. And um, this this transformation uh, was usually triggered by governmental programs, including the Senendan or other youth training uh, programs. And um, 
in the case of Miyagi, for example, in 1926, Ugaki Kazushige, he um, decided to build Zenen uh, Kunenjo uh, youth training uh, centers across Japan. And that was a sort of a confirmation of how the army wanted to train civilians or teenagers to prepare for conscription exam. But on, on the on the ground, what happened was that it created totally new job opportunities for those young uh, farmers who had military service experience. So that kind of created a sense of social mobility, or, or in other words, it's a next step outside the Seinena, the next step after military service. So that kind of transformed how they viewed themselves and the, the, key, the key term here, rural youth, became much more of a modern being. So that sense of social mobility is the core of this mechanism. And this, I identified a similar mechanism happening, especially in the late 1930s in Taiwan and Korea. And another element of the social mobility complex is, as I said, the identity construction of rural youth through Senendan print outlets. So the Senendan created this massive organization encompassing the whole empire. So they did have very good circulation of uh, publications. So through these outprint outlets, um, village youth uh, wrote what they felt in the local community in the language of uh, rural youth, so they could share the, their identity as, you know, model rural youth or Mohan no Senen, and their, they shared their grievances and, and their hopes, and uh, that created a shared identity. And another thing that I emphasize in my book is that this mechanism of social mobility complex was filled with emotions, and not just the idea of rural youth, but they shared intense emotions using the language that provided by state officials. But they, because they uh, expressed their grievances and joys and jealousy and, and other kinds of emotions, uh, they uh, eventually attached emotions to the phrases of Japanese agrarian nationalism. So this is why I think this mechanism was much more complicated than just the government preaching young farmers what to do, or the government or village officials telling farmers how to think about the empire. So this term, the social mobility complex, is supposed to sort of capture a mechanism separate from uh, the government initiative. And using this phrase, I'm trying to explain there was a similar pattern, micro-level pattern, happening in um, Taiwanese, Korean, and Tohoku countryside. But the Okinawan case, it turned out, was quite different because um, Okinawa um, was in a quite interestingly marginalized place uh, in the, in the inner, inner territories, and especially because in the 1920s, the Okinawan economy was devastated, and most of young villagers were encouraged to migrate to bigger cities like Osaka. Uh, 
to support the family economy or uh, prefectural economy. So um, it turned out that Okinawa didn't, or I did some village case there, but I ended up not including, not including the village case per se, but just write a short interlude about Okinawan situation, explaining how the social mobility complex didn't emerge in the 1920s and 30s, despite that uh, there were uh, pre-modern youth associations existing and, and remaining in the, uh, in the Okinawan countryside, and also the strong state initiative to build uh, the image of rural youth in, through the Seinendan. It's just the social elements didn't line up to produce the social mobility complex. Yeah, I thought that the uh, this the as you as you you put it the interlude uh, with Okinawa was actually one of the sort of more interesting um, things in the way that you've chosen to structure the book because you have these uh, three villages one in Tohoku and Miyagi one in Korea one in Taiwan um, and then you have Okinawa and you know you're very forthright about the fact that things are that while you see similarities in the other three that you know Okinawa is very much the exception um, to the to the way that that played out and you're able to um, in by Highlighting the reasons that you know Okinawa didn't play out the way that the others do, I thought it actually helped to um, to, to highlight and bring out um, and and to clarify the, the the reasons that the social mobility con, uh, complex works in Tohoku in Korea in Taiwan. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so the 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 book itself, um, you know, it does uh, center on these three case studies uh, plus Okinawa. Um, and it and it you know goes over all these um, you know similarities and differences between them. Um, it's I really uh, I had a great time reading it, and I wanted to thank you for talking with us about it today. Um, I also want to ask as sort of our you know traditional last question here on the podcast: What is it? Was it? Excuse me. What is it that you're working on now, and uh, what can we expect from you in the future? Oh, okay. Um, I'm. Working on the history of the Chongyang community, and I'm working together with Kumi Cho. She's another historian, who, and she came from this community. And Chongyang is in Japanese, it's Chosen Soden. It's a pro-North Korean organization of Zainichi Koreans in Japan, mm-hmm. and it was established in 1955. And it's been controversial because they claim themselves as North Korean nationals, so there was no meddling with domestic Japanese politics. But there was always a tension of national security. You know, the the Chongyong people supported or uh, smuggled technology or weapons or whatnot to North Korea to support the Kim regime, and um, you know, so it was. It, it has been. Uh, demonized in a sense in the in the discourse of the Japanese public but I want to there are also many writings about the Chongyon or Zainichi people in general but because I have uh, I have this opportunity to work with Kumhi he, she's she has so much insight and internal connections so we want to kind of understand how this their their emotional commitment, to North Korean ideology or North Korean nationalism uh, was immer- uh, was produced and maintained in the community, and also how they view East Asia, Cold War East Asia, uh, in their own eyes. From from their perspective, what does Cold War East Asia look like? You know, that's the, 
that's the kind of question I'm pursuing at the moment. Well, that sounds really interesting. And it sounds like in a very nice way, it pulls together your sort of uh, historical and social science background, along with your interest in um, emotional commitment to uh, national you know, national causes and identity. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, reading some of that when it comes out. Well, Dr. Chai, you know, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thanks for talking with us. Thank you.